another episode of the William Branham Historical Research Podcast. I'm your host, John Collins, the author and founder of William Branham Historical Research at william-branham.org, and with me I have my co-host, researcher, minister, and friend, Charles Paisley, the founder of christiangospelchurch.org, and together we're examining the history and the intersections in history between William Branham and other key figures that either influenced or were influenced by the post-World War II healing revivals. Charles, we have a fun episode ahead today for anybody who was not in the William Branham uh, cult of personality. This could be considered one of the greatest publicity stunts of all time. But for those who were influenced by, you know, the cult of personality, this is going to be something that they have to think through and examine and, um, you know, we were so indoctrinated to believe that this thing, this publicity stunt was of God. And so we've got, we've got literally a split in the crowd. Half of the crowd is going to be trying to think through and piece together. Well, did it really happen this way? And the other half are going to be thinking, this is incredible how somebody could actually have pulled this off and had the long lasting effect that it had. Yeah, this is uh, one of the most famous events to happen during the healing revivals, and it really is something else, because in the message, this event is legendary. Um, and it, it, uh, we could categorize William Branham and F.F. F. Bosworth were staring down the devil, right? right. And, <laughs> and they're defending the doctrines of divine healing, and it, it's just something very, uh, very special. And God miraculously vindicated the prophet uh, at the end of the debate. This is a this is a huge, uh, huge event in the message. Uh, but as we go through, we'll find out things are not entirely as they seem. Yeah. Uh, so today we're going to be talking about William Branham's revival at the Sam Houston Coliseum in January of 1950. And kind of before we get up to that revival, um, we're going to talk just a little bit about what happened in 1948 and 1949, uh, because what's being debated in the Sam Houston Coliseum in a lot of ways, is a direct product of events that have transpired in, in, the, in the two or three years before then. Now, if, if you'll remember, in January 1948, uh, William Branham met F.F. F. Bosworth. They started touring together, started preaching together. Um, and Bosworth is, is really, uh, he's probably preaching just as much or more than William Branham at these meetings and actual, you know, sermons. Um, people are being taught the doctrines of positive confession and and uh, divine healing and Bosworth is playing a key role in helping to you know put out how people are going to believe that um, and him and William Branham are very uh, simpatico basically what what happens once they team up and as time goes on you get four months down the road from meeting Bosworth Oral Roberts comes to one of William Branham's meetings and this is before Oral Roberts himself is really touring or doing anything he meets William Branham and he likes what he sees, and William Br and Oral Roberts goes out and starts doing the same things. Yes. He gets a tent. He's doing miracles. He's got a sign in his hand. People are being healed. Um, and then after that, A.A. A. Allen, and on and on and on, uh, great popular evangelist after popular evangelist just springs up out of nowhere, and overnight they start doing the same things William Branham is doing, the same ways he's doing, copying his methods, his styles. 
Um, and and the healing revival just explodes. There are dozens of other uh, uh, evangelists out doing the same thing. Oral Roberts and A. A. Allen being probably the most two other prominent ones to follow Will, behind William Branham and start doing this. Um, so that's happening. And then at the same time, the Latter Rain revival is taking off, uh, which you know started in Canada and is moving through churches. Uh, with with just a huge emphasis on the sign gifts and the manifested sons of God theology is coming together. So all of this is happening at the same time, and all of it is because William Branham has has popularized these pop these practices and these ways of doing things, um, and these people are following him. And as this goes on, there are all kinds, just hundreds of testimonies of healings and miracles that are pouring out of all of these meetings. And William Branham, they end up starting Voice of Healing magazine, you know, and they're they're publishing articles about all the different things that are happening. William Branham is the one who started this magazine, actually. He started it with, with Gordon Lindsay, uh, and they're just publicizing all of these miracles. And so that's the side of it that in the message we know about. There's all these miracles, there's all these healings, it's amazing, it's miraculous. But there's a side of things going on in these years that the message never tells us about, right, John? I yeah. mean, it's not all signs, wonders, miracles, and healings. There's also a whole lot of people that are actually also dying and being pretty badly hurt by these revivals, right? And that's the side of things that no one no one ever talks about or everyone pretends don't e- didn't even happen. But it was happening all along through these revivals. There were people going that were being told they're healed, and instead of being healed, they died, and there's all kinds of bad fallout from that. Right. So before we get into this, I think I'll throw out <clears throat> a few disclaimers for the various groups of people that are watching this. For those who are interested in the critical history and are interested to see how this thing that became the New Apostolic Reformation formed, um, I'd like to also remind everyone of the Pentecostal Baptist Church of God sect that Roy Davis had created. William Branham is still holding revivals under the auspices of the Pentecostal Baptist Church of God sect uh, as late as um, June of 1953. Um, He's advertising himself as holding Pentecostal Baptist revivals as late as June of 1953. So at the time that this photograph is taken, William Branham is still a member of a bishop in Roy E. Davis's sect, basically. He has sort of rebranded it. He's, he's not openly using this name, but he is to the newspapers, and I'll throw one of the newspaper articles up. So for the historians... This is critical to understand that he's still a member of a different cult that would later be rebranded as the Message Cult of Personality. For those who are working with um, you know, members of the cult trying to rescue them to help them out, I also want to hone in on something that Charles said. Um, this, to the people in the Message, this is the most famous event in Message history. But to the people who've never heard of William Branham, they've never heard of this thing. They see the halo photo and really don't know what it is. The fact that nobody has heard of it in of itself unravels this whole story. Because if God really had his picture taken, as the message claimed, 
you wouldn't have just this little subset that God announced himself to the subset of people. This would be one of the most famous events that the world has just learned that, hey, God is in this ministry. We need to go hear the messenger for the age as they proclaimed. And that is why you'll find that the uh, leaders in the cult of personality try so hard to claim that the photograph, which is held in Washington, D.C., as the cult claimed, but at the copy at the Library of Congress, it's located in the Library of Congress in a collection of other photographs. So it is in the art section of the Library of Congress, but it was held there for copyright purposes, not for investigative purposes, as the cult has claimed. So for people who are working with, you know, trying to help people out of the message, you have to understand that there are a lot of um, misunderstandings of what happened with this photograph and the history. And you have to literally get through all of that indoctrinated programming to help people understand, well, if God wanted the world to know that there's a messenger, God's going to show everybody that you know, if he took his picture with the messenger, it's not going to be just this little tiny group of people that saw the picture. God is wanting to announce everyone, you know, who, whosoever is willing to come, let him come as the Bible says, but the cult takes it in a different way. Well, God only wanted this little group to see the halo, which doesn't make sense at all. And then the disclaimer for the people who are in the message, we're not trying to you know, belittle this event, because I, I was in this. I understand how significant this is to a person who's been indoctrinated. But we want to give you the real history that the cult has hidden from the people. Right, John, because the pretty well everything the message told us about this debate, like every key detail, is actually not true. <laughs> we'll work through all that. So it, within the group... You know, we had a totally wrong perception of what happened at this meeting. Um, they, they just misled us about everything. And a lot of it is because William Branham himself had misled us about everything right. that happened at those debates. And just like he misled us about what happened at the debates, we were also misled about what was going on in the healing revivals leading up to it. Because the debate that happened at this meeting didn't just happen out of the blue. It wasn't just a preacher who decided he hates divine healing and is going to come challenge the them. No, th things are going on here. People are dying. People are dying. That is what, there, there are bad things happening. And, and nobody, people in the message, and John, I'm guilty. I used to be the same way. We would pretend this never happened. And a lot of it is nobody told us about it. And but if you get the more scholarly biographies of William Branham, like he, look, this biography has the very picture we're talking about on the cover, right. the Prophet Healer by Doug Weaver. Um, if you get the uh, book by David Edwin Harrell uh, called All Things Are Possible, these books go through these details and they actually share the accounts. There was something going on here, even at these earlier days in the late 1940s, that people are dying in these revivals. And the leaders in the Pentecostal churches that William Branham is going around, they are starting to recognize something's not right here. They're recognizing all of the dead people. 
right? I mean, because you can't hide the dead people. And the leaders are recognizing it, and trouble is slowly starting to brew, uh, even at this point. But the leaders in the Pentecostal churches... Um, let me just read a couple accounts real quick, because I just want, again, I want the readers to, to know, or listeners to know, that people were not all being healed. In fact, a lot of them were dying, and there were bad fallouts. Um, I'm going to read one one account. This here is from Alfred Pohl. This man was the, he was the missionary secretary of the Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada. He was one of the highest-ranking officials in that denomination, and he was Brother Branham's personal guide on his tours in Canada. I'm just going to read one of many testimonies he gives. He says, One afternoon during the healing campaign, I answered a telephone call. The call was from a Pentecostal pastor from Ontario. He had just flown in with his wife, sick with cancer, and her nurse. As on other occasions, I admitted them to a dormitory room, and in due course she was prayed for by Mr. Branham and pronounced healed. Again, there was much rejoicing, and I remember that the pastor handed me a check of a sizable sum of money to pass on to Mr. Branham. As he did so, he remarked that he couldn't afford to give that much, but that Mr. Branham deserved it because his wife was now healed, and he had spent thousands of dollars on doctors that couldn't have helped her. It was several weeks later that I, as the missionary secretary of our denomination, visited and ministered to our churches in Ontario, and I made an inquiry into the wife's state of health, only to be told that she had passed away. What a blow that was to our dear brother, but that was not all. I was told he had a good radio ministry in his city, and when he had returned from the healings in Saskatoon, he announced over his radio broadcast that his wife had been wonderfully healed. However, just a short while after that, he had to inform his radio audiences that his wife had died, and it dealt a severe blow to his ministry. So the, the preachers know that people are dying. The leadership in these churches know what's happening, and, and these things are not happening necessarily in a completely hidden way. Like that preacher, this was over his radio program that, that this stuff happens. And so these things are these things are coming out. And I want to read one more testimony. This is I'm just picked two preachers out of Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada. One more. This is from a book called um, Healing Through the Centuries. It's by Ronald Kidd. It's another good scholarly book. Talking about the same time in Canada, he says, The same charge was laid against William Branham by W.J. Taylor, the district superintendent of the Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada. He and his executives called for a thorough investigation. And while he expressed a warm regard for Branham as a person, Taylor presented strong evidence to suggest that the claims of the number of people healed were vastly overestimated, and he commented, I firmly believe there is a possibility that this whole business is wrong. So the leadership in these Pentecostal churches in the late 40s are recognizing something is wrong. A lot of people are dying and William Branham is not living up to his hype. But what happens is they keep this kind of secret um, somewhat behind closed doors that they're questioning all this stuff, John. And what happens, you'll notice if you get to, by the end of 1949, really Pentecostal assemblies don't invite William Branham back anymore. And that those those investigations in Winnipeg that we've talked about in the past actually came out of these leaders seeing all the people dying and they start doing investigations the preachers the leaders of the churches and finding out that william branham's claim to be healing all these people it's not true there's a small percentage being healed 
but most are not. And what's happening is there's cases where people are dying, just like the one I read about that preacher's wife. And it's it's raising concerns behind the scenes in the leadership of the established denominations. And so that is what's happening in the years leading up to this debate with Reverend Best. William Branham is praying for people. He's telling them they're healed, even very prominent people, and they're dying. They're dying. And so when they get to this meeting in Sam Houston Coliseum, what we see happen here is really the very first time that William Branham and his campaign get confronted in a very public way over their divine healing practices. Um, and, and that's what's going on here at Sam Houston Coliseum. William Branham is for the first time experiencing uh, uh, some a backlash from another minister uh, out out in normative Christianity. Right, and if you examine what is actually going on in the background, it's not just Reverend Best, although he's the one that gets named, but there's a com- a community of ministers that are concerned with what is happening because. This is very extremely problematic, and for, you know, if you had a serial killer that was in the city, you would be warning people, be careful, lock your doors, there's a serial killer in the streets. Well, these ministers are realizing that there are people who are dying that could, many of them could otherwise have lived, because the whole premise of this divine healing crusade that started in the early years, ironically, is vastly different than the way it ended up in the later years. So a lot of the message, uh, cult of personality, has no idea that this was a thing. But they were actually promoting the notion in the early years that the healing was also tied to your salvation. If you submitted yourself, you know, by faith to God, your case by faith, and God gave you the healing, he also gave you the salvation. And they were trying to raise the argument that it was a new breed of Pentecostalism. Remember, this is the Pentecostal Baptist Church of God sect, not UPC, not PCI, not any of the other groups that existed, though they worked with those groups. And they were trying to say that tongues was not the evidence of the Holy Ghost, but instead healing was the evidence of the Holy Ghost. So you had all of these ministers who are pleading with people, this is not the case, but yet you had thousands of people who believed that it was, and they would take their faith to extremes. So if William Branham said, if you believe and do not doubt, you'll be healed, and then he would make these comments, and I'm sure you've seen them, Charles, he would talk about how penicillin was destructive and there are a lot of people dying of penicillin it caused cancer he said Um, various medications they're denouncing the medications they're not explicitly saying don't take them because legally they would be sued if they were to say this and somebody died but what happens is they plant the idea in the people's head that the medicines are part of the problem just like John Alexander Dowie told his people his victims and that the if you have faith you really God is the one going to heal you not the medicine so the question gets planted in people's minds is taking the medicine doubting my faith and so people begin to challenge their own faith 
And again, this is not explicitly at the instructions of Branham. He just planted all of the seeds so they could jump to the next conclusion. And as a result, there were hundreds of people who were dying, many of which who were supposed to have been healed. And for me, that's one of the big reasons why I, for a long period of time, I assumed that William Branham had a spirit guide on the platform and that the spirit guide was performing actual miracles. I'll bet I believed that for probably the first five years after leaving the message. But after reading the testimony of Alfred Pohl, which you just mentioned, and several others, Pohl is not the only one who is giving these accounts, I realized that it, it's really not a spirit guide. William Branham is making a lot of false claims, but the critical information has been withheld from the public. Right. And, you know, my, my opinion, John, because we don't have access to the investigations that were done by the Pentecostal assemblies, um, we, we, get, we get little bits of it here and there, but we know they actually did perform investigations. We have the evidence that they were called for by their leaders. We don't have the outcomes of, of them, but we can see that William Branham stops being invited into their churches after this. So we can only assume that they were negative, um, and we can also safely assume that um, the details that do come out about them being negative are true. Um, and William Branham, I, I want to point this out too, John. Um, it was in the fall of 1948, the same time that these investigations are, are unfolding, that William Branham has his second documented nervous breakdown actually in these years too. And we'll, we'll talk more about, you know, his, his mental health in, in a full episode somewhere down the road. But I also believe that 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 mental breakdown he had in the fall of 1948 was probably connected to this stuff happening too because behind the scenes the leaders know that this stuff is happening and and as you read especially Alfred Pohl's testimony the leadership even though they know it's happening and even though they're kind of stepping back from William Branham the Pentecostal leaders go a little bit into cover-up mode because they're on the hook with Branham they're the ones that invited him through and everything so there's a there's an element of them who are just kind of washing their hands and trying to pretend this thing never happened yeah and just let Brett William Branham drift away but it it's not that's that's their immediate response to this let's just hope William Branham goes away um, but instead his fame and popularity just keeps growing and growing and so as he comes to the Sam Houston Coliseum, like you mentioned, in Houston, Texas, there's a whole there, – there is actually a large committee of preachers in the Houston area, Reverend Best being one of them, who are concerned. And they start warning their people, um, there's some funny business going on here. Please don't go to these revivals. There's – this isn't all that it seems to be. And what happens is – you know, we're told in the message that, that Reverend Best challenged them to a debate, but actually the other way around. F.F. F. Bosworth challenged Best to a debate um, because they, they found out that uh, this these other preachers in the Houston area warning their people not to come to the meetings. So they issue uh, a challenge, come debate us on divine healing. And the committee gets together and they decide they're going to send Reverend Best um, and Reverend Best volunteers to go and be the debater um, against what's happening uh, in, in the divine healing practices in these ministries. And so Reverend Best goes to the Sam Houston Coliseum, um, which is 
primarily hostile territory, honestly. <laughs> the majority of the crowd there is on the side of William Branham and F.F. F. Bosworth. But he goes to hostile territory um, to have this debate. I used the phrase earlier that this was one of the greatest publicity stunts. You have to realize that I don't, I do not believe that they, that Reverend Bosworth and Reverend William Branham knew that this debate would actually take place. But the way that their sermons are structured, William Branham would always issue challenges and they were blind challenges. He would say, I challenge your faith, or I challenge anybody to come and prove that this isn't right. He makes he's these, bluffing. he's bluffing. He's making these claims frequently and no one ever challenged him except for this one. Um, no one publicly challenged him except for this one case. So I believe that they made one of these bluffing claims, which was again, in the pattern of John Alexander Dowie, they're, they're continuing the same type of of ministry that Dowie um, became famous and created his empire for. So I think what happened is they issued one of these blind challenges behind from behind the pulpit, and there were ministers from the community who disagreed with them in these meetings to see what what these men were doing. They wanted to know more to understand. And so what happened, again, Best wasn't the only one. There's a whole community of ministers. Best was in, at that time, he was a Baptist minister, and there was a community of Baptist ministers, but they weren't the only ones that were warning the people that these men are doing these very, very dangerous things with your lives. But Best is the one who rose up and decided to publicly challenge them. And once the public challenge is issued, that's the point in which it turns into a publicity stunt because, you know, William Branham, F.F. F. Bosworth, they realized the power of the controversy. So they wanted this to explode into what it became. And quite frankly, if you look at the aftermath, this was one of the most ingenious things that Best and Bo that William Branham and Bosworth ever did. Yeah, and there's there's all actually quite a lot of different uh, news articles and and paper pieces that ran on this. So the the whole debate is is fairly well documented and and everything that happened in it is is pretty well covered. Um there's it really um it really kind of begins with uh like I mentioned, really they they William Branham's campaign issued the issued the challenge and best takes it up like you said and you know William Branham told us so much stuff about this debate John and um, I, I think we want to talk about the debate itself but maybe we talk about just some of the things that William Branham said it was not true about it yeah you know one thing is William Branham said that they said, of course, that Reverend Best challenged them to the debate. That's probably the first point that they that they were dishonest with us about. But all of the newspaper accounts that we can read, actually, it's the other way around. Um, we see that Bosworth, it seems, was the one who initiated at least the challenge. Um, and then one of the things William Branham says was that God got so angry with the Reverend Best challenging them that the only picture he let be developed was his halo picture yeah. out of the whole thing, right? That that picture that Charles is holding up for our uh, listeners who don't have video, Charles is holding up a picture of Reverend Best standing at the pulpit, you know, challenging 
F.F. Bosworth, we were told in the cult that because of the halo, because God was having his picture taken with William Branham, that not a single photograph could be developed. And cult leaders, when we published this art, this uh, newspaper article that has the image, cult leaders began saying, well, it was just one roll of film that didn't develop. But but think of think of what that means. So so God was powerless to all of the other roles of film. You know, William Branham's claim was specifically that God would only allow the photograph of the halo to be taken because of the significance of the halo. Yeah, and and that is not the only picture, and that's not even the only picture on that that role. I don't have the other pictures, but there were other pictures on the same role that also did turn out. Right? right. They just they didn't they didn't tell us the truth on that. You know, and and again, you know, why? Why do they? Why the need to embellish and exaggerate and tell us things about this that wasn't true? Um, and another thing that they would tell us about it was that William Branham, after the halo picture was taken, I'll just hold it up on the cover of uh, of Doug Weaver's book. You know, William Branham told us that after the halo picture was taken, that. Uh, it was sent to the FBI, and the FBI investigated the picture uh, to confirm it was authentic, didn't he, John? Yeah. Um, but that's not true either. Not true at all, and a lot of people don't realize this. I've not really published this as much as I should, but it was taken by two photographers of Douglas Studios who are deeply connected to the cloud photograph, which is interesting, but they were two counterfeiters. They were, one of the men was actually prosecuted for counterfeiting and the other one helped him. So these are, these are literally two criminals who are helping (laughs) establish William Branham's halo photograph. And because of these two criminal minds, we have this religious photograph that is in thousands of books and literature. Right. It features really prominently, even in his, his official biography and, Hold the, hold that book back up again. There's another interesting fact. I'm I'm going to interrupt constantly because this is <laughs> this is so fascinating, fascinating to me. This man sent from God book that was supposed to have the photograph on it. I believe I right have to on. go back and pull it up. But yeah. in the voice of healing, they they mentioned that the book itself was held up because they could not use the photograph because Douglas Studios, the two criminal photographers, had sent it for copyright. So in the Voice of Healing magazine itself, on on the front page, it completely undermines William Branham's story about this photograph. So the man who did investigate this photo, his name is George Lacey, and and they publish his his testimony of of what... uh, you know, basically his report on what this photo is is right here. It's also in the Man Sent from God book. Yeah. And I, I have a blowed up copy of it over here. But he, so we know exactly who the man was that investigated this photo. And here's his report. And before we talk about that, let, let's just say very clearly this man was not, nor did he ever work for the FBI. No. This man was a private detective, right, who they paid to do this. Yeah. Not any official government agency, a private detective. And we 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 have from the FBI themselves, here's an open record request from the FBI, right, where the FBI clearly states George Lacey has never been employed by the FBI. So this, this man never worked for the FBI. And so, again, William Branham made that story up. 
Right. And if you know the history, which I've got published on the website, but Lacey was actually ineligible to work for the FBI because Lacey himself was also a criminal. That's right. Lacey had been involved in local law enforcement and had been a, a, a working in a prison. And he had been dismissed and discharged from his duties in that prison um, because he had been if – I, if I recollect the newspaper article correct, John, he had been beating African-American people that were in the jails. Yeah. So we've got William Branham who was – his whole ministry was literally created by the second-in-command of the Ku Klux Klan who is touring in a denomination – on the, under the auspices of the Pentecostal Baptist Church, a denomination of faith founded by the second-in-command of the Klan, who has been touring with Caleb Ridley, the imperial chaplain of the Ku Klux Klan. And then you've got Lacey. And, you know, the Klan's records are not public, so we can't say specifically that Lacey was in the Klan. However, Texas had a very strong Klan presence, and there were later... Um, publications of key public figures who were in po the police force, the detectives, the, you know, all the way ranging from your average layman in the church up to, we're talking politicians, were in the Klan. And there were men connected to Lacey's business that were definitely in the Klan. So while we can't say Lacey was in the Klan, we can say Lacey was literally convicted for beating black people in prisons and he's working with men who are connected to high-ranking clan members right there there's there's every indication that he was a white supremacist and you know every every indica i mean he he was guilty of violence against against uh against blacks so clearly he's not uh he's he he would be friendly towards the ideas of the ku klux klan um the other thing about this is William Branham, a lot of times he would cite this report that Lacey gave out, Lacey wrote, and he would say this report says, um, th this is a rough quote, a uh, rough paraphrase, this is the, pic the only picture of a supernatural being ever captured on film, right? He would say this report said this is the only supernatural being ever captured on film, referring to his halo. But you can get this report. You can read it. It says no such thing. No. Um, it, let me read his conclusion. He says, based upon the above described examination and study, I am under the definite opinion that the negative submitted to examination was not retouched, nor was it a composite or a double exposed negative. Further, I am of the definite opinion that light that the light streak appearing above the head in a halo position was caused by light striking the negative. The question that I always ask, <clears throat> we have photographs from the Houston Coliseum. You can go look them up in historical archives. And they had stage lighting all around. They had stage lighting to the sides, to the back of the speakers. And Charles, if they captured, we've got a photograph of basketball players who have the same, and we, Charles is holding up one of the Beatles, it has the same type of stage lighting, right? It's They're angled specifically so that the shadows aren't cast. So this photograph of the Beatles, if this photograph were submitted to George Lacey, would that report have read the same exact thing is the question I always ask people, and I'll, I'll ask you on the show. 
Yeah, I mean, that, this is, this halo right here is caused by light striking the negative. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. The, the halo picture was caused by light striking the negative. Of course it was. That, that's how all pictures of lights on negatives are created, right? Light struck the negative. And the thing about this Beatles photo, I believe, John, and I, I went back and I believe this is in Sam Houston Coliseum too, this actual picture. And there's there's several other pictures from Sam Houston Coliseum, other events that were held there. Yeah. And the same the same slanted light configuration can be seen over the heads of of John Lennon, of Paul McCartney, of, of Ed yeah. Sullivan, of other figures in these events. And so there's nothing you know, when 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 you see the exact same halo over Ed Sullivan's head that was over right. William Branner's head at the same place, <laughs> yeah, um, at the same angle, yeah, you're kind of it. It takes the the mystique out of it, don't yeah. it, John? I studied it deeply, and they had these these basically they were metal tiers that went behind the stage, and they were specifically designed so that when you took a photograph the lighting would not have shadows and make people look scary in the dark you know these are these are dimly lit coliseums at night so they wanted lighting to basically eliminate all the shadows on the platform so the lighting array that is used in this photograph that you're holding they had the same array in sam houston coliseum they had the same array in many coliseums and many auditoriums because this was a very common thing this was not unusual yeah you know uh, another thing is that fact that they told us that wasn't true is they told us that and william branham said that when this pillar of fire descended down over his head that everybody in the audience, or a lot of people in the audience, saw this pillar of fire come down over him, right? Like, after the fact, he kind of alluded to that, you know, years down the road. He didn't say it the next day. You know, his stories grow with time, right? But eventually, yeah. he's saying everybody saw that pillar of fire. But again, we have all kinds of newspaper accounts and stuff about what happened at that event, and not a single one of them mentions a pillar of fire coming down over William Branham's head at no. those meetings. He seems to have just made that up um, after the fact. Even the men in the background of the photograph, they're sitting there and they're not paying any attention at all to this light. You can see them. The cult has actually doctored the photograph to make it darker and, and take those men out of the photograph. And now the cult prefers to use one that's colorized because they can paint the, paint the men out. But there are clearly men in the background of this photograph. And, you know, if there were even a subset, even if the cult's argument was right, that only a subset of Christians could see this light, well, don't you think that out of the thousands of people in this auditorium, out of the tens that saw it, that one of them would have mentioned this to the newspapers. Or, right. you know, even the reporters who are after talking, there would be people seating, sitting in this event who, after the event, would have been talking and said, oh my gosh, did you see God came down on the platform? And there were so many reporters present because this was a public event, they would have certainly heard this thing and they would have at least questioned it. And there would be some indication that this actually happened. I know. I, I would think that if Reverend Best saw a pillar of fire descend out of heaven and over William Branham's head, he would have got down on his knees and begged for <laughs> forgiveness. Or, you know, something like that would have happened. Absolutely. Um, but instead, 
this thing actually breaks out in violence at the end uh, is, is where, where this thing actually ends up at. Um, that's another point that I wanted to bring out that's actually very critical to this. Again, these are ministers who are warning people that you can die if you get sucked into this thing. You can die. And whenever they issued the challenge, Reverend Best was actually concerned for his safety before going to it because they were so charged with this militant militant style Christianity. Again, this is a it's growing from a militant version of Christianity called the Ku Klux Klan. They're they're actually fearing for their lives to even go to the to this debate. So that's the kind of atmosphere that is going on in these meetings. And these meetings, this isn't like they challenged the debate and then the meetings were held. This was a two-week revival, two full weeks, that after the two weeks they held the debate. So these men have already been in these revivals. They already see that these are people that there's something really wrong here. It's, they, they probably didn't n- understand mind control and how these cults operate, but they knew that something was vastly wrong, and they were in danger for going to this debate. Right, and I don't think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, John, I don't ever remember any statements from William Branham that this debate ended with violence breaking out. Uh, no. you, did he ever mention anything? No, they didn't mention that at all. No, it, by the time this ends, you know, people are, you know, there's people punching each other, and Reverend Best kind of moves quickly to escape out the exit, because uh, this this thing starts to descend into violence as the debate comes to an end. And it's, and it's truthfully, you know, as I read through the debate, I mean, my honest opinion is that Bosworth was goading these people and stirring it up and feeding into the violence that ended up breaking out uh, at the end of it, uh, which is covered in the, some of the newspaper articles about it. So, you know, it's it's something else. Um, and Bosworth, remember, came out of John Alexander Dowie's cult. He watched how John Alexander Dowie literally grew his entire multi-million dollar empire. And that empire, if you go back and study the history of it, it was created because of controversy. So Bosworth knew that if you can make this very controversial to the extent that it breaks out in a fistfight at a Christian event, this is going to be very powerful towards lifting William Branham up into fame. The degree to which we were misled in the message about everything that went on around this debate, you know, and the events leading up to it, is is just amazing to me. Like, I, I, I still struggle to just fully wrap my mind around the depth to which they we were told the wrong stuff about this debate right um this whole thing was uh was something other than what we were told and i i think to me john perhaps the most interesting thing for me to discover that they misled us about is they actually uh misled us about reverend best's beliefs about divine healing even yes um because, again, the message is built on so many straw man arguments um, saying that other people believe things they don't really believe. And and Reverend Best, it's clear that's kind of what they're doing with Reverend Best here. Um, and so, you know, we you can find out exactly what Reverend Best believes on divine healing. You know, he, he was a fairly well-known preacher. He preached lots of sermons. And there's a trust that runs that still keeps a lot of his sermons out there. His name is, full name is Wilburn Elias Best. And you can go out and, and I have done this. I went out and I got his sermons on divine healing. 
I just read them because I was curious what what did he believe uh, about divine healing, and I just wanted to kind of compare it back to you know what F. F. Bosworth, um, you know, published in his book Christ the Healer, and you know, um, let me I I just got a couple quotes here from Reverend Bess that I want to read to our listeners. Um, and again, if, if you're in the message and you're familiar with this debate, it's going to blow your mind to hear of some of these statements that Reverend Bess is going to make. But uh, from his sermon of the Faith, uh, Faith Healing Part 1, he says, quote, No Christian denies that God heals, unquote. <laughs> I remember reading that, and that completely shocked me, because we were programmed to think that this man is a champion of the devil. Yeah, he, and he didn't believe in healing. He said, again, quote, no Christian denies that God heals, unquote. But, you know, that is exactly what the message told us this man believed, <laughs> that he didn't believe in divine healing. No Christian denies that God heals, but Bess believed God was a healer. You know, and if you read on through what uh, Reverend Bess said in his sermons, uh, he's quite clear that he believes that God hears prayers and is fully capable of healing people who pray. And here's another quote from one of Reverend Best's sermons. And and again, just he says, the Hebrew root word rapha means healing of all kinds, particularly of wounds by outward application. It means to cure, heal, or make whole. He's talking about the Jehovah Rapha name of God, you know, God. And he uses the exact same logic or explanation of the Jehovah Rapha name, honestly, that F.F. Bosworth does. And William Branham said, this was part of the cult indoctrination, that Bosworth's main challenge to Reverend Bess was that he, that Bess did not believe that the redemptive names of Jehovah were applied to healing. Well, here's Reverend Bess who's saying exactly what we were told that he did not believe. Yeah. Quote, the Hebrew word rapha means healing of all kinds, particularly of wounds by outward application. It means to cure, heal, or make whole. What in the world, John? They they completely distorted yeah. what Reverend Best... I mean, it, it's a total straw man argument that they do. It, it's just incredible to me that how the totality to which they misrepresented Reverend Best's beliefs to us. And, you know, honestly, now that I've been out of the message a while, I find more and more this is the case with all things. They... In a lot of ways, they just misrepresented to us what yeah. the other, what mainstream Christianity believed, um, you know, and they made straw man arguments out of so many things. What the message told us other churches believed and other preachers believed is not actually true in a lot of cases. And I'll say this, if you're still in the message, you better be very careful um, what you say about other churches and what their beliefs are, because if you're basing what you think they believe on simply on what you heard William Branham or your message preacher say, they're probably not being completely honest with you. And the thing is, either they're dishonest on purpose or, 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 or they're misled themselves. Yeah. Right. What's really interesting is, I've read the book Christ the Healer. It was written by F.F. F. Bosworth. <clears throat> and Bosworth was a strong influence on William Branham's theology in the early years. And during the early years, you'll find even William Branham making some of the same claims. But again, they believed that healing was strongly tied to salvation. And that's why William Branham called it the gospel of divine healing. Well, after Bosworth died... 
and other men became stronger influences than Bosworth, William Branham sort of abandons this notion. And so message cult members today will have no idea that that existed in, during the early years of William Branham's ministry. And instead, if you were to hand them those same sermons by Reverend Best, this is the part that really shocked me when I read these sermons. If you were to hand these sermons to a message believer today and black out the name W.E. Best from all of it and just say, here's a minister who's in the message who's talking about William Branham's divine healing. They would actually believe that a message cult minister wrote these, spoke these sermons because it, it literally matches what the message as almost as a whole believes today in most cases. It, it's to me, it's really incredible. Um, as I know in my sect of the message, we definitely drifted back into uh, a more or less Baptist view of divine healing. But here during the healing revivals, um, they're, they're in positive confession land. They're in, um, they're, they're in word of faith territory with what they're doing. And honestly, what they're doing is the seeds that eventually grow into the prosperity gospel and the word of faith. Yeah. And somewhere along the way, we somewhere in the message, at least in my sect, started heading back towards a Baptist view of divine healing. But that was not the case here at this point in time. They were they were full on preaching name it and claim it. They were preaching positive confession. They were preaching that at this point in the revival. And that that's exactly what F.F. F. Bosworth believed. Um, and to me, the real big difference here in what Reverend Bosworth believe and Reverend Best believe um, is really the point where probably the majority of Christianity would end up differing with the prosperity gospel, the name it and claim it or positive confession. Um, Reverend Best did not believe in that. He did not believe in name it and claim it. He did yeah. not believe in positive confession. And most of Christianity believes that it's not always God's will to heal somebody, right? But with positive confession and that line of belief, it, they believe it is always God's will to heal somebody. But throughout the Bible, you find you know all kinds of cases of people who were godly believing people, uh, and it wasn't God's will to heal them. I mean, you look at King Hezekiah, you look at Job, look at King David's little baby boy who died. Right? He begged God to heal his boy. But God said, you know, I'm not going to heal your son, right? You talk, the Apostle Paul, Timothy had stomach problems. I mean, you can just go all through the Bible and find people who had sicknesses and they prayed to God and they were, from everything the Bible tells us, devout believers. But God, for whatever reason, chose not to heal in that case. And I think in normal Christianity, you know, they recognize that God does not heal everybody every time. Sometimes... Um, God gets glory, I guess I'd put it this way. God gets glory out of some other instance of this illness in such in some way. So I think that really is the point where Reverend Best and F.F. F. Bosworth have their real conflict. Um, Reverend Best takes a high view of God's sovereignty in healing, but Bosworth and at the message, or I guess I would say the healing revivalists at this point have really no view of God's sovereignty and healing. It, it's just purely an act of faith. But that's, honestly, that is where positive confession and name it and claim it and word of faith 
type beliefs start to break down. Um, and that's where it ends up leading into abuse, honestly. Because if you if you believe that divine healing is going to have a 100% success rate, right? And the only reason it's going to fail is because you have unconfessed sin or you don't have faith. What ends up happening, and this happens over and over, we find this through all of these testimonies of people that didn't get healed. What happens is that person who don't get healing ends up getting turned into a victim. Um, like that, for example, that, that preacher's wife who died in Ontario, uh, they clearly believed that gift of healing. They clearly believed that she was healed, but then she died. And what happens? What, what do you say to that person? You say either, well, your wife just didn't have faith or she must have had unconfessed sin, right? So that's where it starts to turn abusive. When you have people who don't get healed, even devout Christian people like that that are dying, it, the explanation is they died because they were not having enough faith or they died because they had unconfessed sin. And so these stigma starts getting attached to the people who are not being healed. And this is exactly what F.F. F. Bosworth and William Branham believe. That's exactly what they published in their in their articles. And so they start victimizing these people who don't get healed even further, even beyond them not being healed. They start becoming victimized with accusations of lack of faith and accusations of unconfessed sin. Yeah, it's really, really problematic. I have several family members and friends who have endured chronic illnesses throughout their life. Some of them have actually died from chronic illness and even in the churches that aren't as destructive as what William Branham initially was, where they don't condemn the people who are sick, these same people are listening to these sermons where William Branham is presenting this notion that if you remain sick, you're still, you know, you've got sin in your life, you're an unbeliever. Well, internally, they try to reconcile what's happening to their body by convincing themselves that the reason that they're sick is because they don't believe they have sin in their life and it actually amplifies their conditions they become actually more uh, struggling with their diseases more because mentally they believe that there's something wrong in their lives right because you know when and, and so you know as a minister john i know i have been i've met other ministers in the message who still believe it this name it and claim it kind of a way and I, one of the things I did as a minister frequently was go to the nursing homes, go to the hospitals. I visited the sick and the dying quite a bit. And you could tell when the name and claim it preacher had been there before me. And yeah. these people, a lot of times, were in spiritual turmoil uh, because they had been convinced that they did not have faith. They had been convinced that it was their fault that they were dying or they had unconfessed sin. And so at the time of their, of their, you know, instead of using the gift of healing or, or promise of divine healing or something like that in a way to encourage or help somebody, it actually gets used in such a way that when they leave, that person has now got a, a spiritual condition, a spiritual turmoil on top of their physical illness. And they're, 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 they're physically ill and now they're beating themselves up mentally. Oh, I have some unconfessed sin I need to discover so I can confess to God and be healed. Or there's something wrong with me or I'm just a terrible Christian. I don't have any faith. And it's very easy for these divine healing views with positive confession, with word of faith, with name it and claim it. If you carry them out to their logical end, 
the logical conclusion is if you're not healed, it is your fault. That's the logical conclusion of the divine healing beliefs that William Branham and F.F. F. Bosworth were preaching at this point in their ministries. And really, if you apply logic to this, think, think of this. So Reverend Bosworth, Reverend Branham, they decide to use this debate as a publicity stunt. Logically, they knew that if they could bring a, enough controversy, people would, you know, see this thing as bigger than it was. And it, it worked. I'm, I'm going to say that it actually worked. But logically speaking, if this were Christianity instead of the show business type gospel, why did they not go to a hospital and empty the hospital as a publicity stunt? Remember, back then, they were claiming that salvation and healing were both strongly linked together. If that's the case, if this is, as they called it, the gospel of divine healing, why not go empty out a hospital? Exactly, exactly. And, you know, the message don't like to look at that side of things, right? You know, we just would pretend that didn't even exist. The side of, okay, there's all these people over here who are not being healed and some of them are, are being hurt even, right? Like there's not even a willingness to look or acknowledge that those people exist. But if if you will be honest with yourself and you'll look at the Carol Ruth Strublers, if you'll look at the Donnie Mortons, if you'll look like at that preacher's wife that, that I read at the opening – and you look at that and you, and you got to somehow in your mind come to a come to a conclusion of those people were hurt by what happened was that okay or not right what am i going to do am i going to defend william branham or am i going to further victimize these people by accusing them of a lack of faith or unconfessed sin right and that that's what the people a lot of people miss with this right they think well i'm i'm defending william branham i'm defending a doctrine of divine healing but they don't at all consider that in doing that that they're victimizing the carol ruth strubler that they're yeah. victimizing the donnie morton that they're victimizing uh the the preacher's wife in canada right they don't think about that side of it at all right and so you know if you're in the message and you're listening to to this podcast that's what i would encourage you to do take some time and put yourself in the shoes of these people who died and think about how they f would feel hearing you say that they died because they didn't have faith or they died because they um, had unconfessed sin. And if you truly believe that, right, then you believe what they were preaching at the time. But if you have some other reason that you think they died besides unconfessed sin or besides um, a lack of faith, you don't believe the message. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's the truth because that is what the message taught uh, at this point in time. And it's in black and white. It's in William Branham's own sermons. This photograph for me is the the clearest example between Christianity and idolatry. We actually have several photographs of men who are actually praying to this photograph. We have pictures of people who are pictures that were taken during baptism where the minister's holding up this photograph because it has to the message cult turned into an idol. And if you compare the idolatry that exists within this message cult to the Bible, it's just clearly not Christian. But even more to the point, people who are praying to this photograph have no idea that they're praying to the result of convicts and ex-convicts. It's not in any way, shape, or form remotely close to, you know, Christian, this photograph. 
Right. I mean, in the message, this photo, they literally believe they have a photo of God. And people bow to this picture. They pray to this picture. And one thing about this picture that is incredibly interesting to me, John. So in our sect of the message, we were told that after William Branham died, um, your grandfather and all the people at the Branham Tabernacle took down the picture of Jesus and put up this picture behind the platform <laughs> but that's not true is it it's John? not true when did your church and there's photos of this when did the picture of william branham and the halo get hung up behind the platform at the tabernacle i was shocked when i saw this we have black and white photographs of william branham standing in front of himself with this photograph in the tabernacle he's preaching to the people with a picture of himself behind him william branham himself hung the picture of himself up yeah. behind the platform at the Branham Tabernacle. It was it was why William Branham was still living that that was done. And and so that shocks that shocked me so bad John because that means that the preachers in our sect of the message they were at the Branham Tabernacle John in those days. They lied to us about this. Yeah. They lied to us about they told us they told us that your grandfather <laughs> and the people at your church took the Jesus picture down and put up Brother Branham's picture. And so you've got to make sure you put up a picture here of William Branham preaching with that picture behind him on the platform. You know, it's really a clear example of a cult because you've got the central figure who's literally standing in front of the central figure. And it's the clearest example of self-promotion. Here's, here's me speaking and here's me in a photograph behind me. One of our um, researchers has commented on our YouTube feed asking about just simply the name, Branham Tabernacle. How common is it that ministers will name their church after themselves instead of this is the Christian church or this is a church about Jesus or you know something that resembles Christianity instead of a central figure of a cult? And I went up and I, I went into the newspaper archives and looked up the other churches in the same city at the time that Branham Tabernacle was formed as the Billy Branham Pentecostal Tabernacle. You had St. Luke's Reformed Church, Wall Street Methodist Evangelical Church, First Baptist Church, First Presbyterian Park Methodist Evangelical Church, the First Christian Church, Morton Memorial Church, United Brethren, the Maple Street Methodist Church, and St. Paul's Church. You have, out of all these churches, none are named after the minister speaking. Some are named after the apostles, some after Jesus Christ or Christianity. But here is a church named after the man who is the central figure of the cult, where there is a photograph of the central figure of the cult standing, you know, right behind the platform where he is standing. Yeah, it, it's unbelievable to me, you know, on this, you know, from from the vantage point of my sect of the message. I am floored to discover that William Branham actually put that picture up there while he was still living. That floors me. And that that just kind of goes to it's it says a whole lot, don't it? I mean, that you would yeah. hang up a a picture of yourself <laughs> on the platform with with a halo over your head uh and and especially as you get towards the end when he starts saying you know the elijah of this day is the lord jesus christ um it's 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 quite startling it, and it's clear that he was heading in this direction for quite a long while in his ministry and 
this picture people believe it's a picture of god the, the message people i think a lot of message people have it in their homes hanging on their walls right um it's it's far and wide uh there's pic you can find people bowing down to it praying to it it really is something this picture but i think as we went through in this episode um our our listeners hopefully can see that this picture is not all it's cracked up to be Right. This Charles, I think this episode, I have interrupted you more than any other podcast that we've had so far. It's just so fascinating to me. And I've not even skimmed the surface of all the information that I would like to bubble up to the surface. You can go to our website and you can find, you know, the rest of the history if you want to read through it. But I think for me, the biggest thing here is, as you've pointed out, the information that is given to cult members is so vastly different from the actual history that the leaders in this cult of personality are controlling and manipulating the history so that people who are in this thing won't question it, won't, you know, won't find out what actually happened to the extent that there are people who are raised in this that believe the wrong version of history who became connected to actual Christian historians. And some of this false information has actually made it into mainstream Christian history. Whenever, whenever this history was being written, you know, as it happened, it was so vastly different than the way that it has actually been written in history books. So for me, the big question to end the show is why would they manipulate history if this was actually a move by God? It's something else. And I'm, I'm glad that we went through this episode. I think there's a whole lot of interesting tidbits in here. And uh, it's amazing to discover the depth to which they, they misled us and deceived us about this topic. And again, I want to encourage all of our listeners in the message, think about these people who died and think about what you would have to say to them and their family as to why they died, right? And that, I have to say, that is one of the big things that, that opened my eyes up on this topic. As you read through, like, Alfred Pohl's book, he had to explain to these people. They, he literally met the families of these people who died, and he was in the position to have to explain to them why Brother Branham's healing didn't work. Okay? Yeah. And acknowledge these people exist. They existed, many of them. And what would you say to them? What would you say to them in that position? And think about that. See what that does for you. Well, and think of this. Uh, again, I could talk about this for the next five hours if you wanted to, Charles. But think of this. Reverend Best, who actually championed Christianity against this thing that was a false gospel. Make no mistake. That's what Reverend Best was doing. Reverend Best was in a community where people were actually being sucked into this thing, who likely died because we have clear examples of this throughout William Branham's ministry. So Reverend Best, who was championing Christianity against this false gospel, would have also had to explain to family members that these other family members and friends who died because of this thing died because of a false gospel. And for me, this is hugely problematic because we were indoctrinated to think of Reverend Best is the bad guy. He is actually the good guy of this story. Right. Let me maybe finish with a, a quote. I'm going to read one more segment from Alfred Pohl. He said, The divine healing campaigns were very popular. They attracted large crowds from far and near, 
often at great expense to the sick who needed special care and transportation. But also for most of the sick, they proved disappointing. Their expectations had been raised so high only to be dashed after all the excitement was over. Some seemed to experience a momentary relief from pain, but all too many would discover no lasting benefit. And by that time, the healer was gone, and the person would be too far away to explain or answer. The sick person was then simply left to accuse themselves of a lack of faith, and in many cases, they threw their faith overboard. So, you know, that is a man who was dealing with the actual fallout of the people who were not healed across all kinds of churches that he was responsible for. There has to be a right way to look at that. I mean, was that man crazy out of his mind? Did he imagine all those people died? And how was he supposed to respond to his people when they're dying and they were supposed to have been healed, right? And then you have to ask yourself, was did William Branham help those people or did he make them worse? And my conclusion is he made those people worse, John. Those people threw their faith overboard. Not They probably were more inclined to throw their faith overboard after having been told they were healed by William Branham rather than someone giving them some kind of positive encouragement in their final days. Yeah, I agree. We see it often in the X-Message community. We have support groups for people who have left the cult. And there's a large number of people, sadly, who were deeply bruised by this thing that they were told was Christianity. And they have left, they have no interest in church or God or, you know, anything to do with this. Because if Christianity looks like this, then they want no part of it. And again, this is just so vastly different from Christianity that I, um, I can't put into words how evil this thing is and how much I respect Reverend Best for fighting against it. Because again, this, this was pure evil, but Charles, I know we could talk for the next five, 10 hours about this. I still have about 20 points that I want to get through. And, um, I think I'm going to save them and sprinkle them through the next few episodes because there's just so much here to talk through. And this is one of the biggest building blocks to the next episodes, what's coming. So if you've enjoyed our show and you want more information, you can check us out on the web. You can find us at william-branham.org and christiangospelchurch.org. For an overview of the historical research of William Branham and his healing revivals, read Preacher Behind the White Hoods, a critical examination of William Branham and his message, available on Amazon, Kindle, and Audible. Join us again next week. We've got a great episode coming. 